We continue on this morning in our sermon series in the Gospel of John. We are in uh, chapter 6 this week in a story that is one of the most uh, famous, I suppose, uh, of Jesus' miracles. It's him feeding the 5,000, as it says, uh, miraculously. Um, so we're going to read here, it's printed for you in your bulletin, John 6, 1 through 13. We're going to see what this is telling us about who Jesus is and what he does in his grace. John 6, 1 through 13, this is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and he saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for the people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, son of Peter's brother, spoke up. Well, here's a boy with five small, small barley loaves and two small fish. How far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in the place. And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So he gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, thank you that in it we have a revelation of who you are and what you're about. And so a revelation of who we are in you and what we are doing. I pray in these moments that you would move by your spirit to illumine our hearts, open the eyes of our hearts to see the power that's at work within us, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, as Paul said in Ephesians 1. Let us see, get a glimpse of the glory and majesty of Jesus that our hearts might love him all the more. Proudly in his matchless name. Amen. I'm going to start out with a really encouraging statement. The mission that Jesus has for us here in Don is too much for us to do. It's too big. Way too big. Um, as we, I mean, I have it printed on our bulletin on the back. It says who we are or why we exist. We believe that Jesus came to bring good news. That through his life, death, and resurrection, God has brought forgiveness, transformation, and hope to a world marred by sin. Our mission is to proclaim and live out the reality of the gospel, which we believe is good news for the lost town, city, and world. Our mission is to proclaim and live out the reality of the gospel. Friends, it's too big for us. It's too big for me. It's too big for you. It's too big for us together. And here's what I mean. I want you to imagine there's somebody who is just looking at uh, the external things. We're a new church. We gather every Sunday, and sometimes the air condition doesn't work. Sometimes it randomly turns off, and I don't know if it's going to turn back on. <laughs> I'm a little worried at this moment. Um, Sometimes the sound system goes awry or we break a guitar stream in the middle of a song. And what do we do once we get here? If everything even goes right, what do we do? Somebody walked in, they would see us reading and listening. They'd see us eating a tiny, tiny, tiny piece of bread. 
a little bit of grape juice or wine. They hear us singing some songs, and they'd say, well, that's just words. It's just a guy with a guitar talking. It's just some people in a room. It's, a ch it's some chairs and a little table. And we're very much a new church. And we started during a pandemic. It's not a great time to start anything new, but we did. We aren't rolling in money. And here's the bad news. I'm the pastor. I talk too much. I laugh too loud. I'm pretty disorganized and scatterbrained. I can be uh, very quick to speak and slow to listen. That's who I am. And there aren't a ton of us here. And you all have incredible gifts. I'm, I'm amazed constantly when I think about what God has already done through all of you. But if you put us all together, like if you made a spreadsheet of our giftings and our resources, and you put it just on the spreadsheet and you looked at it, it's not going to add up to enough to accomplish the mission of proclaiming and living out the reality of the gospel. It's not it's, it's too much for us. It can feel like the stuff we bring to the table, no matter how good it may be, will inevitably fall short of being able to accomplish the mission. In other words, we can feel a whole lot like this little boy here in verse 9. In the face of a great crowd of people who are hungry, we have what? Five small pieces of bread and two small fish. Not even enough to make a dent in what is needed. But I want to encourage us this morning with this. The same Jesus who was at work here to do this miraculous thing in John 6. Simply provide material bread and fish for people to eat with their bodies. That same Jesus is the one who gives grace and multiplies grace and crowns his grace with more grace. He is the same Jesus today who will take whatever uh, small bread and fish that we bring and he will multiply it for his purposes. To nourish our community. So, I want to talk about that uh, this morning. First, we'll look at I'll break it up into a couple of different sections. The first one is this, an unwelcome problem. An unwelcome problem. Now, first I want to make a note. If you remember last week, we're at the end of John chapter 5, and Jesus had called his witnesses. Remember, he was under interrogation by the religious leaders. And the last one he mentioned was Moses. He said, Moses testified to me. We talked about one of the way, ways that Moses talking about Jesus, Deuteronomy 19, he said, there's one day going to be a prophet to come that's like me. A new Moses, in a sense. But what we see here in this passage, the first thing that Jesus does after saying that, is he's there on the mountainside, Moses on Mount Sinai. He's leading a large group of people and providing for them in a miraculous way. Man and the wilderness. This is Jesus as the new, the true inventor. Moses here. And that's just an aside I did. I wanted to mention. So here in the passage, the crowd of people of Jesus following Jesus has steadily increased. And here, in the Gospel of John at least, it's at its peak. This is at the very height of Jesus' popularity. So it started out with just a handful of people that had been following John the Baptist. And John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and he had this small collection of folks. It's gradually picked up steam. Jesus has uh, gained a greater name, a greater popularity than here. This is the biggest individual crowd in the Gospel of John that is following after Jesus. And he's here in Galilee, which is his home region. So he's already returned back home to Galilee once in the Gospel of John after kind of making his big public debut in Jerusalem. And here he comes back again. And the hometown is excited. Like, 
the, the hometown boy was made good, and we are following after him. He's done some incredible things, and so this massive crowd has come to follow him. Now, if you've ever been a part of putting on an event, you know that there's all kind of logistical questions that have to be answered. If you've got a big crowd coming, you can't, like if you're putting on a concert, you can't just put up speakers and have some guitars and electricity and go. You've got to get like permits. You've got to make sure there's enough porta johns. You've got to make sure there's places with water because there's going to be lots of people out there. You've got to ask all kinds of logistical questions. You've got to do a bunch of different things. And so this crowd is gathered here, and Jesus turns to his disciple Philip with one of these logistical questions. What does he say? Where shall we buy bread for all these people to shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? Now in the Gospel of John, the character of Philip, he's one that seems especially geared toward looking toward the needs or the good of other people. We first meet him in the first chapter of John and he follows Jesus and immediately finds his friend Nathaniel. He says, we found the Messiah. When we see Philip later on in chapter 12, he, he's someone that comes to Jesus and says, I've, I've talked to this group of Greek people. That aren't even Jewish at all. And they're very interested in who you are. And he bridges that, that gap. And the Philip seems to be geared toward the, the needs or the good of other people. And so I think Jesus knew this and why he asked Philip directly. You're probably already thinking about this, Philip. You're looking around, you're counting heads, and you're realizing, you're realizing it's 1130. And people are getting hungry. <laughs> How are we going to feed all of these people? And Philip in verse 7 seems a bit distraught. What does he say? It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each of these to have a body. Now that half a year's wages is literally 200 denarii, which if we're going to do the currency exchange in today's terms, Philip is saying it's going to take $15,000 to have enough food for each of these people to just have a bite. And we are poor, and we don't have that in the project budget. <laughs> we don't have a byline for bread and fish. We don't have an extra 15 grand sitting in the project budget. And notice what Jesus and Philip don't say, though. They don't say, well, technically it should have been their responsibility to cut their own food. Jesus doesn't say, they should have thought and planned better. We are under obligation to feed them. No, there almost seems to be an assumption here that what qualifies them is their need. Not that they've prepared. Um, Jesus and Philip see this need and they know it needs to be addressed. And so that's the unwelcome problem. They suddenly look around and realize we need to figure out how to come up with 15 grand to buy food or we need to find some food from somewhere. That brings me to my second section. An insufficient solution. Insufficient solution. In verse 8, Andrew, a different disciple, he raises the only solution he can find. So he's looking around and he seems to find this little boy who's walking up. And he says, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. That's not enough for lunch for me, guys. How far would that go among so many? Five small barley loaves, two small fish. Now I can't help but think there were a bunch of adults there that day. And I'm sure not everybody forgot to pack food. But notice there were any adults coming to the front of the line to say, here's what I have. It's one little boy. It's one little boy. Maybe the adults are a little too self-aware. And they thought, I don't want to embarrass myself by being the person who looks around and sees these thousands of people and say, here's my, here's my lunch. Here's my five small loaves and my two small fish. Maybe the adults were a little self-protective and thought, if I give... And I don't have enough. 
Now, I don't think we should be surprised to see this meager offering coming from the hand of a child. Remember, Jesus has already told the very impressive Nicodemus in John chapter 3, coming to the kingdom of God, to even see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. You have to be born again. You have to come like a child to Jesus or you don't come at all with open hands. Shouldn't surprise us to see this meager offering coming from the hands of a child. The open hands of a child is the posture of faith. The open hands that are open to receive, but also the open hands that are open to give. This little boy gives what he has because he sees a need. And he's not thinking, well, if I give this, I won't have enough for dinner. This child offers what he has. Now, it can just feel like a cute story, right? If we stop there, it would just seem like one of those things that goes viral every once in a while where, like, uh, some kid finds out something, you know, there's a lot of overdue charges at, for, for lunch at school, and so he starts a lemonade stand. That, you know, can, it maybe we feel a little bit like that, just a cute story. How adorable it is that this little kid thinks that his little five loaves and two fishes will make a dent in this bigger problem. And it is meager. It is small loaves. John points that out. It is small fish. But there's nothing small in the hands of Jesus. Because notice what happens next. Jesus takes that meager offering of faith. And in his extraordinary power, he takes this very ordinary thing and he does something absolutely incredible. And that brings me to my third section of the extraordinary grace of Jesus. Notice. Jesus has these two small fish, these five small loaves, and in verse 10, what does he do? He has people sit down. He has the people sit down, and John makes the comment that there was, quote, plenty of grass in that place. That's such an interesting note. Of all the detail that John could point out, these people are going to sit down in a place where there's abundance of grass. Uh, I actually think that John's reaching back to Psalm 23, which we read in our call to worship. What does the Lord as shepherd do for his people? He makes us to lie down in green pastures. It's Jesus almost literally doing what that is figuratively saying the Lord does as shepherd. So he has the people sit down. And in verse 11, the extraordinary grace of Jesus breaks into this situation. What does he do? Jesus takes the loaves, he gives thanks, and he distributes to those who are seated. He takes the loaves, he gives thanks, and he distributes those who were seated. Now that, that, uh, that's almost a formula. I, I, I want to pop in here and say that, that taking of loaves, giving thanks, and distributing, that's almost a formula that we find like in the book of Acts when it's talking about the Lord's Supper. Now this isn't Jesus. He hasn't instituted the Lord's Supper here, but I think John is using the language specifically to point to the idea of Jesus feeding. Um, you know, every week when we do the Almost every time I say God uses these ordinary things to give us his extraordinary grace. I think Jesus is showing us here exactly what he does. Um, he takes these very ordinary things that this little boy has done. He gives thanks. He breaks it and distributes it. And it's enough for everyone there. And what do they receive? Not just a morsel. Not just a piece. As much as they wanted. It turns into Golden Corral, guys. They didn't have enough lunch, and it turns into all-you-can-eat buffet of both bread and fish until they were full. The grace of Jesus in the face of this need shows up in absolute abundance to the point that there were leftovers enough to fill 12 baskets. What has Jesus done here? Well, I want you to think of this. 
The very fact that the kid had five loaves and two fish, that was grace in the first place. God providing in the first place. What does Jesus do? He looks at that grace and he gives more grace. He multiplies grace. And then he crowns that grace with more grace. This is a pattern that Jesus does. He gives grace, he multiplies his grace, and he crowns that grace with more grace. It's grace front to back. It's the generosity of our God demonstrating who he is. Now, there's no doubt this is a remarkable thing that Jesus has done. One that made an incredible imprint on John, who would have been writing this down decades after he had seen it happen with his own eyes. And that brings me to my final section, the mission of God. I want to think about this passage in the context of what I mentioned at the beginning, our life together, who we are as a new church. God's brought us together. I believe sincerely that He's knitting us together in His love as a community that's going to uh, exist for a long time. That God's called us to this mission. He's going to sustain us. And we're going to watch God do some incredible things over the next 20, 30, 40 years through Christ Church. But if we were to step back and take stock, if we were to pull that spreadsheet out, we would see that what we have in our hands to offer up to Jesus is five small barley loaves and two small fish. We're limited. We're limited. No matter how gifted we are, we got to sleep. No matter how gifted we are, we're not infinite. And we weren't meant to be. We're weak, and that's not a moral problem. That's who we are as creatures. And we all have different gifts, but we all have different weaknesses too. And in the combination, the sum total of who we are, we bring all of that to the table. And our good intentions, no matter how good they might be, friends, they're going to run out. Our good intentions are going to ebb and flow. Our motivation is going to ebb and flow. There's going to be seasons in our life, individually and together, where we maybe feel a bit exhausted. Uh, right now might be one of those times. <laughs> we feel exhausted and we don't feel like we have much at all to bring to the table. But the significance of our calling as a church is not the sum total of our parts. So I'm not saying let's not do a budget each year as a church, but I'm saying that that is not the only uh, factors at play. A church is not like a church has some similarities to starting a new business, maybe, but it's not a business. A church is an outpost of the kingdom of God. A church is an example, a local example. Of Jesus fulfilling his promise to build his church at the gates of hell cannot stand against. And so we might bring that spreadsheet out, but we have to add the variable of Jesus in. And the significant thing in the mix, the most significant thing in the mix at all is this person of Jesus, who so often takes ordinary, very ordinary things and does extraordinary things with them. As I said, I say that often with the Lord's Supper, but it's true of what He does across the board. More often than not, God doesn't work in obvious supernatural ways. He doesn't. Even for John, you read through the Gospel of John, there's, I can't remember exactly how many, but like 16 different scenes. So John sat down and he, he pulled from what he had experienced under Jesus. But even that is on, all told, pretty small number, more often than not, God works in very ordinary, mundane-looking ways. That's not any less supernatural, 
Maybe not obviously so. But more often than not, God uses what we might otherwise think is mundane or ordinary, and He infuses them, for lack of a better word, with His grace and multiplies it. It's all grace. As I said, the two fish and the five loaves were provision for that young boy in the first place. That is grace. The child's giving in faith that day was like when we give our offerings in worship. We don't give just to fill a budget. We give in worship. And what does God do? And us giving a portion of what He's given us in the first place, God multiplies that. Multiplies that beyond just uh, numbers in a bank account. He multiplies His grace with more grace. And He makes what may seem from the outside like a small thing sufficient, more than sufficient for His purposes. And He crowns that grace with more grace, providing not just enough for the need, but He provides in abundance. And the good news for us is that when I talk about us finding our motivation and our way of thriving in life in Jesus, we aren't just talking about bread, even 12 baskets full left over to the side. When we find our sufficiency in who Jesus is, He's an inexhaustible fountain of goodness for us. His goodness cannot run out because it is who He is. The love of God can, uh, for us cannot run out because God is love. He isn't just loving. God is love. It's who He is. And so when we are swept up into the love of God by Jesus Christ, we find ourselves in an ocean that has no bottom. We find ourselves filled with a sufficiency that cannot run out, cannot exhaust itself. So we come back time and time again, time and time again to Him. To find ourselves nourished, not just by bread and, 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 and fish that He might provide and, and, and multiply. We find ourselves nourished in our hearts and who we are, the very core of who we are, by His glory and His love. He multiplies grace with more grace and He crowns it with grace. That's His pattern. And so with that in mind, I come back to a lot of the things I mentioned at the beginning. The mission of testifying to the kingdom of God and grace of Jesus and done is too big for us, but it is not too big for God. It's not. And so while I'm speaking very ordinary words, I'm not speaking a different language right now. I'm speaking very ordinary English with a southern drawl. This is who I am. But what does God do with those very ordinary words? He sets them apart. And He speaks through the words of Scripture, through the preaching of the Word, to show us who He is. Our limited, ordinary words point to the eternal Word of God, who was with God in the beginning, who was God, Jesus, who has come to us. And we are invited, through this instrument of human words, as limited as it may be, to know God. He has stooped to make Himself known to us. The ordinary songs that we sing, they find a greater significance than just our voices. Now, we have some beautiful singers in this church, and when we sing, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Especially up here. You guys are all pointed this way, and so it like bounces just right to right here. It's a really... I, I need to start recording because it's really pretty. Um, but the ordinary songs we sing in worship, they find a greater significance because as we are gathered to sing, there's another voice in the midst. In Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews points to an idea that Jesus is almost our worship leader, testifying to the glory of God in our presence. 
As we are gathered together, there's another voice in the mix. Purifying our worship, lifting it up beyond just the sum total of our voices. God takes our very ordinary songs, and Jesus, in our midst, sings as well. And so our worship is never not enough. It, even our worship is purified by Jesus, that it might be beautiful in the ears of the Lord. God takes ordinary things and gives us an extraordinary grace through it. The bread and wine, and I talk about it every week, God uses these very ordinary things to communicate in the mundane that He is for us, that He's our God, we are His people. So that's true of our church, that's true of our resources, that's true of our gifts. God is going to use this church in big ways. He already has. He already has. In the few months that we worship together in this building, um, God is going to continue. And we're going to see growth in this church. We're going to see growth in number. We're going to see growth in maturity. We're going to see growth in mission as God opens up more and more doors for us to serve our community. I pray we're going to see growth and expansion. We're going to see church plants come out of here in our neighboring communities. We're going to see missionaries call from within our church to go and cross cultural barriers with the gospel. We're going to see that. But more often than not, it's going to be God taking the very ordinary things that we have in our hands and multiplying them by His grace. That's what He does. So I want to give you that as our great confidence as we walk away. As we are looking forward to a season of growth in the future, um, as we are looking forward to seeing more new people come in and new families, and we're looking forward to seeing how the gospel spreads out, I want to give you the great encouragement that it is never our best ideas at work that's doing it. It's never our best laid plans that's making it happen. It's never that I'm a great entrepreneur that had a good business plan that I pressed play on and it's happening. No, we walk in the reality for our wonderful Father, building His kingdom. We watch it happen. We're witnesses to it happen. And it's all grace from the God. It's Jesus giving grace. It's Jesus multiplying that grace. It's Jesus crowning that grace with more grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank You. I thank You that You do not treat us as we deserve. That you don't treat us as we as if we're just employees and you give us a paycheck. In any way, in salvation or in ministry and following you into our community, it's never what's going on. But that you create in the church a community surrounding your grace, a community surrounding your promises and your instruction to us. A community that points to you as wonderful and that you often work in such in uh, so many of the ordinary mundane things of our lives to show us who you are. You multiply uh, your grace beyond what we can account for. And we stand always marveling and baffling at this grace that has found us in Christ. Let that capture our hearts. May we never look to anything else. May we always look to you and your sufficiency. And how wonderful you are to us. I pray all that in the name of our matchless King Jesus. Amen.